If you're looking for another great podcast for book lovers, check out The Desk Set from our friends at King County Library System in Washington State. On the show, KCLS librarians interview authors and make book recommendations aimed at helping readers broaden and diversify their reading lives. Find The Desk Set wherever you get your podcasts or visit kcls.org slash desk set to listen now. All the way down here, Samson County, the one I was looking for. On a hot March day in Montgomery, Alabama, Edwin Maxwell, a librarian from Brooklyn, walked around the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. On the ground in front of him were large stone markers laid out like tombstones. There was a marker to represent every county in America where black people had been lynched. Edwin stopped in front of a marker for Sampson County, North Carolina. Some genealogical research on my family. The the slaves were sold to the Maxwell family or they inherited them. I know my great, great, great grandfather went back and forth between Sampson and Cumberland County, but not the mm. family never really moved outside of that. Edwin read the names of people who had been lynched in the county where his ancestors were enslaved and then lived for many generations. It was a lot to take in, and it brought the history of racial terror home for him. And that's really the aim of this national memorial, to bring the error of racial terror home for all Americans by documenting and memorializing black Americans who were lynched by white mobs between 1877 and 1950. The Memorial for Peace and Justice was built by the Equal Justice Institute, or EJI, the organization founded by lawyer and activist Brian Stevenson. So far, EJI has memorialized 4,400 black people who were lynched in this country, often combing through local records to find previously unacknowledged lynchings. Edwin and a team of other staff from Brooklyn Public Library were in Montgomery that day in March, before the pandemic and New York City's shutdown, to gather information about how other cities have created monuments to acknowledge the history of racial violence. The ultimate goal of this is to figure out how we can properly memorialize and bring this back to Brooklyn. Right? It resonates with people when they when they have a connection to it, like it's in their neighborhood. So today on Borrowed, we're going to be bringing this story home. From Montgomery, Alabama to East New York, where one of our own library branches has an important story to tell about the history of racial inequality right here in Brooklyn. I'm Krista Corbett-Kavoris. And I'm Adwa Aduse. You're listening to Borrowed, Stories that start at the library. The Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, is one of the only public monuments to lynching in America. The memorial itself is made up of hundreds of suspended markers, identical to the ones laid out like tombstones that Edwin encountered. Each marker has the name of a county, and below that, the names of the Black Americans who had been lynched. Along one of the walls are brief narratives about the events that led to the lynching. They range from relationships with white women to casual social transgressions like finding a lost wallet and keeping the money or speaking to a white man in a way thought to be disrespectful. All of those acts were enough to be murdered. 
In order to have a family member or an ancestor who was lynched added to the memorial, family members or descendants have to provide documentation, proof that a lynching occurred. And sometimes that's hard to do. These crimes were not always recorded by the police or even reported in local papers. Sometimes all the family has is a story passed down verbally through generations. Toward the end of the memorial, there's a large wall with water cascading over it. It's cooler there, and the sound of the water is calming. Behind the waterfall, there's an inscription that Lamine, another Brooklyn librarian, was drawn to. She read it out loud. Thousands of African Americans are unknown victims of racial terror lynchings whose deaths cannot be documented. Many whose names will never be known. They are all honored here. And I feel like this is impactful because um, as we consider the project that New Lots buried on a, built on an African burial ground, many of their stories, many of their names may never be known, but I feel that their legacies will live on um, because they probably left behind children and grandchildren and their stories are still being written and still being told and they don't end there. It's just the beginning in a way that we can honor them. The reason all these BPL staffers visited the Memorial to Peace and Justice was to help us redesign a library branch here in Brooklyn, the library Lamine just mentioned, New Lots Library. It was one of our last branches to be built. It went up in 1955. It's a fairly standard building, but the land underneath and around the building has a very interesting history. This part of Brooklyn is the native homeland of the Canarsie people. And starting with European settlement, it became farmland. Enslaved and free Africans labored on the land, and in 1827, slavery was abolished in New York State. Starting around 1680, the white Dutch settlers started a cemetery on the plot of land where the library now sits. Both white slave owners and likely enslaved Africans and free black people in Brooklyn were buried there throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. And just a note on the prevalence of slavery in Brooklyn around this time, because it's not something we really talk about. In 1790, about one in three Brooklynites were enslaved. That's a higher percentage of enslaved people than North Carolina at the time. And then in the 19th century, the roads were straightened in the area, and part of the cemetery was likely plowed over. I'm going to read from a Brooklyn Daily Eagle article written in 1900 about that process. Quote, it being necessary to cut down some depth, many of the graves with their contents were removed. That is, the graves were removed, but in many cases, the bones were left lying on the side of the bank. Some residents of the neighborhood say that the bones might be seen there until within the last five years. If this is true, it shows on the part of the responsible persons a lack of veneration amounting almost to vandalism. The article goes on to say that pieces of tombstones could be found broken and scattered on the surrounding streets. Around the time of the cemetery's destruction, so the mid-1800s, a new cemetery opened across the street next to the Dutch Reformed Church. There's documentation that many white residents were reinterred across the street. But the remains of enslaved and free African Americans were likely left behind, and it may have been those bones that were unceremoniously dug up and left on the street. In 1922, residents complained that the former cemetery was in disarray. The city decided to build a playground for schoolchildren on top of the land. 
And this is where the story gets tricky, because from this point onwards, for many decades, the story of that burial ground fell out of the history books. I was told about the burial ground back in 2009. A woman in the community uh, just had heard a rumor about it um, and asked if I knew anything about it as well. Catherine Mbali Green Johnson is the executive director and founder of Arts East New York, a nonprofit organization in the neighborhood that uses arts for social and economic change. It was just pulling at my heart, this, this quote unquote rumor. And so we went down to the um, Brooklyn Historical Society and spent hours combing through books and and trying to get you know information on it. Couldn't find anything. Uh, we were just about to leave, and I said, you know what? Let's maybe let's look at maps, and maybe the maps will tell us something. So we we turned around, put our things down. <clears throat> went through some maps, and sure enough, we saw a cemetery um, that were, that was on both sides, the one that is in existence now, and then the one uh, that was uh, underneath the library in the park behind it. And so we went back to the shelves, because it just said cemetery, it didn't say who was buried there, right? And um, sure enough, we found a quote from, um, I believe his name was Johannes uh, Skink, uh, and it, it stated in that book um, that the white bodies were removed uh, from the cemetery across the street to the one that's there now uh, because Black people were overcrowding that cemetery. They wanted to separate the bodies. And that gave us the information that we needed to sort of confirm the existence of the burial ground. That removal of white bodies from the old cemetery that Catherine just mentioned happened from the late 1600s up until the 19th century. The first thing I felt was sad, sadness, um, that a historic site um, and a very important and sacred site has been disregarded um, and that no one knew, no one knows about it in the neighborhood and that the people who were buried there, their stories um, are no longer, you know, they're just lost in the wind. So sadness, anger, and just really a passion to make sure that this the history gets told. Catherine pulled together a group of neighbors to figure out how to honor the space in some way. They got a number of local officials on board, and in 2013, the area was renamed African Burial Ground Square to acknowledge its history. And there's a plaque on the site now. It reads in part, quote, For those who were taken from their homeland and laid the foundation for the East New York community, we honor you forever. We want to make sure that people know the real history of what, what has taken place in the community. So we know that the um, Africans who came here with the Dutch and before the Dutch uh, came as, you know, came as free, right? They were working, they were, there was some exchange of, of resources for their work. Um, and so it's very likely that the people who are buried in this space were not enslaved. 
Today, East New York has a population that is 50% black and 40% Hispanic, and about 35% of the neighborhood is also made up of people born outside of the United States. So altogether, it's a significantly higher proportion of people of color and of immigrants than the rest of New York City. So the burial ground and its message has special resonance for this neighborhood. But the streets surrounding the library are named after Dutch settlers, many of whom own slaves. The playground on top of the former cemetery was called Shank Park, after the Dutch Shank family who farmed the area in East New York using the labor of enslaved people. That's a biased view of history, Catherine says, the fact that so many places are named after the Dutch. It erases the labor of black people, both free and enslaved, who had just as much hand in building that area of Brooklyn. Just last year, Catherine and a large group of community members in East New York got the playground renamed from Shank Park to Sankofa Park, a Swahili word that means looking back to go forward. When you are in a neighborhood and you have realized that, wow, like my people actually built this. But I've been told um, that we were, you know, less than, right, that we were not... um, are capable of, uh, and, and and that is an untruth. And, and when we internalize those untruths, um, it's very destructive. And so it's very important for the burial ground to be amplified, um, to be taught, we have curriculum taught in school about it, especially in the senior community, um, tours, et cetera, and, and, and have to be done. It, it truly, Uh, makes a difference in the lives of um, community residents and more importantly, the youth. Catherine remembers the renaming ceremony. She remembers walking the streets roughly along the perimeter of the demolished cemetery. It was a powerful day for her, she said. And we're telling this story now because New Lots Library is long overdue for a makeover. The branch is home to one of our adult learning centers where Brooklynites can learn English or work towards a high school diploma. And as we plan a renovation for New Lots Library, as well as getting the branch equipped for the technology and space it needs to be a modern branch, we also want to acknowledge the injustice that was done to the memory of those enslaved and free people whose graves were partially paved over and whose names were not recorded, but who are part of our history. It's a monumental place, right? The African burial ground touches um, the library there. So whatever design we come up with it has to acknowledge the legendary history that like the the grounds that we're standing on. That's Edwin Maxwell again, the librarian who found the names of people who had been lynched in the county where his family is from on a memorial for peace and justice back in Montgomery. Edwin worked in East New York as the branch manager at New Lots Library from 2014 to 2016. So the library renovation and the African burial ground have special meaning for him. There are many people in that community that are making life transitions and, and trying to embezzle their lives. Um, and that's where the library comes into place, right? You know, one of the things that I take away from, from being in that um, community is this idea that they want better, right? Um, they are trying, they're fighting, they're, you know, they're committed to, to improving their lives and the lives of, of the young people um, that, that are going to come up after them. That last voice is Kerwin Pilgrim, the director of adult learning at BPL. Kerwin also started out at New Lots Library back in 2000. In order to design a building that reflects what the community wants, 
BPL set up feedback sessions for East New York residents to come and talk about what they wanted from their library and how they wanted the African burial ground to be acknowledged. Curran was at one of those feedback sessions, and he talked about what he heard from community members who use the Learning Center at New Lots Library. They didn't want to be left out, right? Sometimes, unfortunately, when gentrification happens, um, as it's been happening throughout the borough, right, sometimes community feels like, wow, they're making space for new people to come. They're building these new structures for the new community people, right? Because, you know, they haven't done it for us, right? Um, and they want to make sure that they're not forgotten um, in any type of building or restoration or, or renovation that's happening. East New York is a neighborhood with a vibrant community, but it's also a neighborhood that doesn't often get to tell its own story. If you do a Google search for East New York, a lot of the first clicks that come up are reports of violent crime in the neighborhood. And it's true that East New York has one of the highest rates of crime and poverty in New York City, but the neighborhood is so much more than that. East New York is home to a thriving urban farm, a strong arts culture, and many local small businesses. It has strong grassroots organizations, too, made up of community residents who have been advocating for themselves for generations. Edwin says that's another thing that the community members really wanted to emphasize in their new library space. One telling thing that they said that they wanted a space that that celebrates all the triumphs and, and doesn't want to necessarily put a highlight on the suffering and the trauma that has been like endured through through the years there. In order to build a library that really reflects what the neighborhood wants, we've been trying to listen to the voices of people who are in East New York now or who have deep roots there. So we're picking up where we left off in the story of that particular plot of land in East New York in 1955 when New Lots Library was built. It turns out that it was East New York residents who advocated for the construction of the building in the first place. At the time, in the 1950s, East New York was 98% white, a mix of recent immigrants, including Jews and Italians. The women of the community mobilized during the 50s. They took this neighborhood from being a kind of outpost of basically, you know, working class, lower middle class, and they fought very hard to get the new library across the street from on New Lots Avenue to get that built in the mid-50s, right? They built the library, they got 50,000 books in, and a week later, the shelves were empty because there was so much demand. That's a clip from an oral history conducted in 2014 with Richard Rabinowitz, a former resident of East New York. Later, in the 1980s and 90s, when crime, violence, and drug use was becoming a big problem in the neighborhood and throughout New York City, members of a grassroots advocacy group, the United Community Center, or UCC, advocated for New Lots Library once again. Here's longtime East New York resident Mel Greiser speaking in a 2014 oral history interview. The uh, workers there were about to, didn't want to work there. And they're talking about closing it because there was too much violence inside the library. And then so we had a big rally, UCC, put all the three-year-olds and four-year-olds out and, uh, and started the, uh, and had a big rally. There it is. This is a community that fights for itself and fights for its library time and time again. 
That's right. And so we're going to turn this last part of the episode over to the residents of East New York and let them tell the story of their neighborhood starting in the 1950s when Black and Hispanic New Yorkers were moving to East New York from more crowded neighborhoods like Crown Heights and Brownsville. The following clips are excerpts from the Sarita Daftery Steele collection of East New York oral histories. My name is Johanna Brown, and I live here in Staraty. Moved to East New York when I was six years old. Uh, we were the third black family to move on the block. Um, Hasidic Jews lived on either side of us. Boulevard projects were just built in 1950. So when I moved in there, I was just five years old and the project was five years old. The people were moving out to a better neighborhood and uh, housing was uh, looking a whole lot better. Uh, at the time, and they were making a lot more projects. A lot more blacks were moving in, a lot more Spanish, and uh, most of my Jewish and Italian friends uh, were moving out. As I see it, what was happening was that, you know, there were these various kinds of programs that, is, that encouraged bankers and realtors to turn, these, turn this neighborhood over. You know, my parents were, I think, the last people on the block to sell the house to a black family. There was no concerted effort to resist this. The phone calls, my parents remember the phone calls coming all the time, you know, um, and postcards, and don't be the last person on the block. You're going to lose everything. You're going to da 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 da. And they probably did lose some, something of what, you know, what the house was worth. It was a terrible loss. They, you know, my mother in New York never again had a kind of community. Um, she had no place to shop. She had no neighbors that she could really see every day. The rug was pulled out from under that whole generation of people. If you were a tenant with those, that's where you really got the shaft because all of a sudden, you think you'd have a lease or whatever, and then you were asked to leave. One of the last houses on that whole road, you could see, was the one we lived in in 620. And eventually, the same thing happened to our landlord. She was ready to sell. Someone offered her a great price. And, you know, she sold and just gave you, you know, a month or two notice to get out, and that's it. Very disruptive to people's lives. And that's, I think, the sad part of it. Everyone became a revolving door. And that seems to be the whole story, that whole neighborhood. Everyone started revolving. As London houses got darker, then more people fled. And as that started to happen, you'd see the maintenance in the building start to change to the point you could call with a problem with your toilet. And I remember very specifically calling because the toilet was backing up. And I was told, well, it's not an emergency. Make an appointment. We'll be there probably next week. We moved out here, I think it was uh, August 19, it was 1963. Yeah. It was a lovely neighborhood at the time, too. And in 1967, I left. And I was gone. I went to service, went to Vietnam. I did my three years in the service. And when I came back to East New York, that was the biggest shock I've ever had. I mean, there were buildings at one time. In three years, it went down. 
And I was surprised. It really it knocked the block down. The block was just, there we were there was houses, and then it was nothing but abandoned buildings. Then there was vacant lots of sides and everything. It, it wasn't until later that I recognized that there was redlining going on. That was purposeful. I didn't know anything. I was young. All I know is that I was gonna be able to get a a house, a whole, you know. Uh, you know, it divides people, and it did. It was a real division. And uh, I remember the, the talk, when they said, here, these stories about the north side and, you know, the, the young kids, the Italians and on this side and the, the blacks and the Hispanics on this side and, you know, the f conflict that would take place. And also the services. I mean, the 75th Precinct became notable for being, you know, racist and all the rest of it. I mean, it was just a mess. You just think about how these things are, are pushed, you know, how it's organized almost like to, to, to create this kind of a conflict. That was Johanna Brown, Conrad Piggott, Carmen Yankades, Edwina Joseph, Isaiah Montgomery, and Mary Barksdale. Those are excerpts from oral histories conducted by Sarita Daftery-Steele between 2014 and 2015. You can listen to the full interviews at the Center for Brooklyn History, which is now part of Brooklyn Public Library. We'll put a link to that in our show notes page. Now, as we consider how to build a library branch that honors these experiences, that is honest about the racist policies that led to blockbusting and redlining, in the 1960s up through the 1980s. We are listening back to this story. And East New York is on the cusp of change once again. People are moving in. From 2000 to 2010, the population increased by 10%. Clearly, East New York is a very desirable neighborhood. I mean, the three train ends out in New Lots and the L train ends not too far away. Newcomers to the neighborhood are often people who have been priced out of nearby neighborhoods like Bushwick and Brownsville, which are already experiencing significant gentrification themselves. Two years after these oral histories were collected, Mayor de Blasio rezoned East New York, opening up the neighborhood for massive development and housing. About 3,500 new apartments are expected to be built in the next 10 years. But the plan has already received criticism for not allocating enough of those housing units as affordable and for moving too slowly on the affordable housing developments and the jobs for people in the neighborhood, which was promised in the rezoning. And now the development has stalled because of the pandemic. And East New York is one of the worst hit neighborhoods in New York City. It has the highest death rate for COVID infections. So with the pandemic causing the city to slash budgets overall, that might make it hard for the neighborhood to get that housing equity it needs along with all the development. Some East New York residents are excited about the development that has been happening in the neighborhood. But often it means that more and more longtime East New Yorkers are being pushed out. Here's Catherine Mbali again, the executive director of Arts East New York. She used to live in the neighborhood, but she can't afford it anymore. East New York is rich, rich with history. Um, yeah, but yeah, love East New York, although I am priced out. For one resident, Johanna Brown, whose oral history we heard earlier, the cycle of gentrification is history repeating itself. I love New York City. I love what it has to offer culturally. 
I know my way around, but I will not grow old here. New York is no place to grow old. And I got a big mouth. And I will speak up when I feel that something is unjust. And I cannot just sit back and watch something happen and not say or do anything about it. So, um, I, if you want to call it running or flight, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to leave too. Um, I'm not running to suburbia, I don't think. But it doesn't matter. Uh, my, my motivations are different. Um, but people are running back now. And how does it feel to see that process happening? If we were included, it would be okay. But no one's really concerned about including us. They're not really. They'll live among us and they'll tolerate us. But eventually we'll be, we'll be priced out. We won't be able to afford to live next door. I'm wondering about the fate of East New York. And I never give up hope. I see if they're willing to live next door, if they're willing to fight for affordable housing for everyone, people who are gonna fight for that, they, they can make a difference, they can make things change. Whatever the new New Lots Library looks like, we know it has to fit the community that has been there and that is there now, and the history that has led up to this point. The project is moving forward and we'll be sure to keep you updated on its progress. it wouldn't be a borrowed episode without books. We asked one of our Center for Brooklyn History archivists to recommend a few books about the history of East New York. Um, so I'm Maggie Schreiner, and I'm the Collections and Digital Access Manager at the Center for Brooklyn History. Uh, so Brooklyn Historical Society, um, which is half of what is now the Center for Brooklyn History, uh, had a multi-year collaborative project with the Weeksville Heritage Center and Irondale Ensemble um, called In Pursuit of Freedom that looked at the history of slavery and abolition in Brooklyn. And as part of that project, in the reading room of the Othmer Library at 128 Pierpont, the Center for Brooklyn History, uh, we have a browsing area of books about the history of slavery and abolition in Brooklyn specifically. So I took all these recommendations from that area of the library and those resources that were compiled and they're all um, also available um, circulating at BPL. So the first book that I wanted to talk about is In the Shadow of Slavery, African Americans in New York City, 1626 to 1863 by Leslie Harris, which was published in 2003. Uh, it starts with the arrival of the first enslaved people in 1626 um, through the years before emancipation in 1827 and ends uh, one of the most sort of terrifying displays of racism in American history, the New York City draft riots in 1863. And it draws on lots of different kinds of archival sources, including travel accounts, audio, autobiographies, newspapers, and records of uh, institutions and organizations. 
So another book that I wanted to talk about that is specific to East New York um, is called How East New York Became a Ghetto by Walter Thabit. And he was a city planner who was hired in the mid 1960s uh, to work with the community of East New York to develop a plan for low and moderate income public housing. And he really approached his work as an activist and wanted to create projects that would benefit the actual residents of the neighborhoods he was working in, not just politicians or developers. And in his work uh, over the course of many decades in East New York, he really witnessed how racist city policy led first to the disinvestment from East New York and then continued to work against its uh, revitalization. I think, you know, there's lots of connections between the history of slavery um, and African-American communities in New York and what development and displacement and gentrification looks like in New York City today. You can check out both those titles in the shadow of slavery, African-Americans in New York City, 1626 to 1863 by Leslie Harris and How East New York Became a Ghetto by Walter Thabit, as well as others Maggie selected for this episode at Brooklyn Public Library. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me, Krista Corby-Kavoris and Adjua Aduse. You can find a transcript of this episode as well as a full list of book recommendations at our website, bklynlibrary.org slash podcasts. Bard is produced by Virginia Marshall and is written by myself and Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Meryl Friedman, and Robin Lester Kenton. Our music composer is Billy Libby. Borrowed will be back in a few weeks. Until then, get out and vote or mail in your ballot. Mm-hmm.